Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your, I don't know, I mean, what else is there to say, right? You've been, I'm your companion. We've been on this journey now for so very long, and what a journey it's been almost an infinite journey at times. Um, And I say that because I just watched on the Netflixes. They have a movie there called uh, 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 Avengers? Right, Avengers. Uh, Not Infinity War. Yeah, Infinity War. Avengers Infinity War. And Again, like, you know that I sometimes forget what year it is, I forget how old I am, and I forgot what the Avengers were called for a second. I I wasn't trying to be funny there. I just forgot what they were called. I wanted to say the Alliance, but I knew that wasn't right. And then I thought, Avengers, that's a dumb name. What what are they avenging? Uh, They're defenders, you could say. I don't know what they're avenging. Anyway, in that, now in this one, after Infinity War, not the, this isn't the new one. I haven't seen the latest one, Endgame. I watched Infinity War for the first time because I don't, I don't particularly like superhero movies, but I feel like I'm kind of getting geared up to see Endgame because everybody seems to enjoy it. My son wants to see it. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go see that. But here's the thing about Infinity War. And, you know, I'm going to say what happens in it because the the movie is X number of years old and you've probably seen it already. I was probably the last person to see it. But um, basically, the end of Infinity War, uh, uh, half of the life in the universe just disappears. This guy Thanos, he just snaps his fingers and half of all life just, you know, like that. Uh, without without the spurty sound effects. It's more like a whooshy sound effect. You know, they turn into dust. And here's the thing. I didn't care. 
I did not care. That is my problem with superhero movies in general. I don't care. I am unmoved by the great uh, superheroic sprawl. I'm unmoved by magic and all the kind of uh, uh, gods and demigods and all the rest of it that exist in the superhero universe. And the reason this relates to Jude, I think, is because we're talking about a kind of infinite number of lives, right? Trillions of lives spread out across the universe. Half of them disappear for, I shall say, utterly illogical reasons. Utterly illogical. Um, The thought is life has gotten out of balance and there's too many creatures. And so he needs to just get rid of half and then everything will be fine. Neglecting to deal with the simple math that eventually, though, you know, the, the, the universe will become repopulated and neglecting to mention the fact that the universe itself is infinite. And so there are, in fact, infinite resources to help. So if he, because Thanos has all of this power in his grasp, he can just kind of alleviate the resource problems that may exist for half the life in the universe or for all the life in the universe um, because of overpopulation. It doesn't make sense that the solution is to just kill everybody. That just doesn't make sense. So setting that aside for a moment. The story of three hearts, well-drawn, full-beating, living hearts, is so much more captivating than the story of trillions of hearts ceasing to beat with the snap of a fingers. This book, this book about which I was dubious, has captured me in a way that the entire Marvel universe has not. And there's been only one fight in Jude the Obscure, one knockdown, drag him out brawl that occurred in the last episode. It lasted about three quarters of a page. And all we have in the Marvel Universe is fights. And some of the characters in the Marvel Universe are better drawn than others. Like, I do kind of give a shit about Tony Stark, and I do kind of give a shit about, uh, I don't know, the Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, it's a small, it's a small little knot of people. I kind of like them. I kind of care about them. But there's so many of these characters and we just don't, we just don't, I don't care about them really at all. I'm not impressed by their gizmos and I dislike their magic. But these simple people, these three simple people who have no magic at all, have me on the edge of my seat. And now in this little triangle, the center of that triangle I mean, I guess triangles don't have centers. The the apex of that triangle. The one who stands astride, Jude and Richard, is returning to Phillotson's home where he lays on his sickbed. That beating heart of his wrung dry from his relationship with his wife. He has given her everything. She has conceded him nothing. And if you'll recall, that is what Jude's complaint was to her. I think two episodes ago, he conceded everything to her and it's literally killing him. And now he's in his sick bed. He hasn't asked for Sue because he wouldn't do that, but he has, he has let it be known to his friend Gillingham that he would love it if Sue would come. Gillingham has reached out 
to try to find her. And at last, she comes. The door was hesitatingly opened, and there entered Sue. She was in light spring clothing, and her advent seemed ghostly, like the flitting in of a moth. He turned his eyes upon her and flushed, but appeared to check his primary impulse to speak. I have no business here, she said, bending her frightened face to him, but I heard you were ill, very ill, as I know that you recognize other feelings between man and woman than physical love. I have come. I am not very ill, my dear friend, only unwell. I didn't know that, and I am afraid that only a severe illness would have justified my coming. (laughs) Is she joking there? I mean, that seems like a little bit of a joke. I hope that's a joke. Anyway, if it is, it's a pretty funny joke. And he says, yes, yes, and I almost wish you had not come. It is a little too soon, that's all I mean. Meaning, I'm not dying yet, so there's no reason for you to... I don't want you to make the trip twice, right? I'm just a little unwell. You shouldn't have come. I'll probably be dead in a couple weeks. If you could come as I'm dying, that would be better. Still, let us make the best of it. You haven't heard about the school, I suppose. No, what about it? Only that I am going away from here to another place. The managers and I don't agree, and we are going to part. That's all. Sue did not for a moment, either now or later, suspect what troubles had resulted to him from letting her go. It never once seemed to cross her mind, and she received no news whatever from Shaston. They talked on slight and ephemeral subjects, and when his tea was brought up, he told the amazed little servant that a cup was to be set for Sue. And that, I mean, what better cue is there for me than, you know, to take a, a, sup of, a sip of my own tea? Uh, here it comes. Mmm. That is some good English breakfast tea. Oh, you know, I love a cup of tea when I read Jude. That young person was much more interested in their history than they supposed, meaning the uh, the servant. And as she descended the stairs, she lifted her eyes and hands in grotesque amazement. While they sipped, Sue went to the window and thoughtfully said, It is such a beautiful sunset, Richard. They are mostly beautiful from here owing to the rays crossing the mist of the veil. But I lose them all as they don't shine into this gloomy corner where I lie. Wouldn't you like to see this particular one? It is like heaven opened. Ah, yes, but I can't. I'll help you to. No, the bedstead can't be shifted. But see how I mean. She went to where a swing glass stood, and taking it in her hands, carried it to a spot by the window where it could catch the sunshine, moving the glass till the beams were reflected into Phillotson's face. There, you can see the great red sun now, she said, and I am sure it will cheer you. I do so hope it will. She spoke with a childlike, repentant kindness, as if she could not do too much for him. Phillotson smiled sadly. You are an odd creature, he murmured, as the sun glowed in his eyes. The idea of your coming to see me after what has passed. Don't let us get back upon that, she said quickly. I have to catch the omnibus for the train, as Jude doesn't know I have come. He was out when I started, so I must return home almost directly. Richard, I am so very glad you are better. 
You don't hate me, do you? You have been such a kind friend to me. I'm glad to know you think so, said Phillotson huskily. No, I don't hate you. You know, she's acting like she's doing him this big favor by coming to see him. He obliquely kind of said it would be nice to see her, but he didn't ask. He didn't say, you know, I got to have Sue here. But she's kind of acting like, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this thing for you. I wouldn't have come if I hadn't, if I thought you weren't dying, you know, and, and she's making it about herself. Oh, you don't hate me, do you? After what I, you know, I mean, you don't hate me, right? For running out on you with my cousin. Well, we all have our foibles, Richard, don't we? You don't hate me for that, do you? For causing you to lose your position here in Shaston? She doesn't know, but. She has, she has utterly bespoiled his life uh, from his point of view. And look, he has every right to hate her, I think. I mean, he did this out of love. That's the thing that we keep returning to. He did all of this out of love. And one of the things about the Guardians of the Galaxy that I feel like maybe is the reason I like them more than the other characters, like the Avengers, is because you can tell they love each other. Like, they really love each other, these guardians of the galaxy, the raccoon, the, the tree there, the lord of space and time. Like, they, you know, the, uh, that thing with the antenna, like, they all, they really care about each other. Whereas the Avengers, you know, it more or less feels like a business relationship. Like, they're kind of co-workers, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of love there. And so when they get into scrapes, I just don't care as much. You know, yes, they have a history, but it, it doesn't feel like it's based on anything other than a kind of professional relationship. What they do, you know, I don't feel like it's done out of love. I feel like it's done out of loyalty, which is which are different, you know, slightly different. Whereas I feel like with Phillotson and with Jude, it's all done out of love. Phillotson, especially, as I said last time. And Sue, we have no idea what motivates her. We thought we did. Now we don't know. I have put forth my theory that she is a deeply closeted lesbian and does not have even the language of her heart to tell her so. She only knows what she does not love, but does not know what she does. It grew dusk quickly in the gloomy room during their intermittent chat. And when candles were brought and it was time to leave, she put her hand in his, or rather allowed it to flit through his, for she was significantly light in touch. She had nearly closed the door when he said, Sue. He had noticed that, in turning away from him, tears were on her face and a quiver in her lip. It was bad policy to recall her. He knew it while he pursued it, but he could not help it. She came back. Sue, he murmured, do you wish to make it up and stay? I'll forgive you and condone everything. Oh, you can't. You can't, she said hastily. You can't condone it now. He is your husband now, in effect, you mean, of course. You may assume it. He is obtaining a divorce from his wife, Arabella. His wife? Well, let me re- I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I don't like that take. You know, sometimes I do a little take and I don't like it. It was I thought it was a little overplayed, right? I'm gonna try it again. Oh no, you can't," she said hastily. "You can't condone it now. He is your husband now. In effect, you mean, of course. You may assume it. He is obtaining a divorce from his wife, Arabella. His wife. I still don't love it. His wife. His wife. His wife. Not like that. His wife. Yeah, good. 
good. He's a little sick, right? But we can hear the surprise, you know, his wife. It is altogether news to me. It is altogether news to me that he has a wife. It was a bad marriage, like yours, like mine. He is not doing it so much on his own account as on hers. She wrote and told him it would be a kindness to her, since then she could marry and live respectably. And Jude has agreed. A wife. A kindness to her. Ah, yes. A kindness to her to release her altogether. But I don't like the sound of it. I can forgive Sue. No, no, you can't have me back now. I have been so wicked as to do what I have done. Well, what is she talking about here? She doesn't want to come back. Why is she, she, you know, she's, she's sort of leaving the door open that maybe she could come back, but she can't. She can't come back. It would kill Jude. Ultimately, it would kill Phillotson. Is she the Black Widow like in the Avengers? There had arisen in Sue's face that incipient fright which showed itself whenever he changed from friend to husband, and which made her adopt any line of defense against marital feeling in him. I must go now. I'll come again, may I? I don't ask you to go even now. I ask you to stay. I thank you, Richard, but I must, as you are not so ill as I thought. I cannot stay. If you were dying, I would stay, but God damn it, look at you. You're practically lifelike, sir. She's his, his from lips to heel, said Phillotson, but so faintly that in closing the door, she did not hear it. The dread of a reactionary change in the schoolmaster's sentiments, coupled, perhaps, with a faint shamefacedness at letting even him know what a slipshod lack of thoroughness, from a man's point of view, characterized her transferred allegiance, prevented her telling him of her. Thus far, I I mean, I'm not understanding this sentence at all. I'm going to go back. The dread of a reactionary change in the schoolmaster's sentiments coupled, perhaps, with a faint shamefacedness at letting even him know what a slipshod lack of thoroughness, from a man's point of view, characterized her transferred allegiance, prevented her telling him of her thus far incomplete relations with Jude. I get it. I get it now. She's saying he, she couldn't even tell him that they, that they, they haven't, uh, you know, done it. I don't know why he would need to know that one way or the other. You know, if she had come in and be like, Hey, Richard, guess what? We did it. That would be even weirder, I think, than just not telling him anything at all. And Phillotson lay writhing like a man in hell as he pictured the prettily dressed, maddening compound of sympathy and averseness who bore his name, returning impatiently to the home of her lover. Okay, well, that's a good time to take a break, and we will be back on Obscure. And we're back. Gillingham was so interested in Phillotson's affairs and so seriously concerned about him that he walked up the hillside to Shaston two or three times a week, 
uh, and if you recall from uh, the early description of Gillingham, he's not a hale man. Well, he may be hale, but he's not fit. And in all the months that Phillotson had lived in Shaston, Gillingham had known, Gillingham had known that Phillotson was just up the hill, but had neglected to make the trip even once. Now that Phillotson is the subject of scandal and controversy, Gillingham, you know, he's trotting up and down the hill like it's nothing. So what kind of friend is he? He walked up the hillside to Shaston two or three times a week, although there and back, it was a journey of nine miles. So he's walking back and forth nine miles. I mean, ultimately, it's good for him, which had to be performed between tea and supper after a hard day's work in school. When he called on the next occasion after Sue's visit, his friend was downstairs and Gillingham noticed that his restless mood had been supplanted by a more fixed and composed one. "'She's been here since you called last,' said Phillotson. "'Not Mrs. Phillotson. Yes. Ah, you've made it up? No. "'She just came, patted my pillow with her little white hand, "'played the thoughtful nurse for half an hour, and went away. "'Well, I'm hanged. A little hussy.' <laughs> "'I like that very much. I like that he you. "'I mean, look, we don't hear the word hussy enough in this day and age. "'You know, it's a good word.' It's it's a good pejorative. That hussy, how dare she? I like the indignation. What do you say? Oh, nothing. What do you mean? I mean what a tantalizing, capricious little woman. If she were not your wife, she is not. She's another man's except in name and law, and I have been thinking. It was suggested to me by a conversation I had with her, that in kindness to her, I ought to dissolve the legal tie altogether, which, singularly enough, I think I can do. Now she has been back and refused my request to stay after I said I had forgiven her. I believe that fact would afford me opportunity of doing it, though I did not see it at the moment. What's the use of keeping her chained on to me if she doesn't belong to me? I know, I feel absolutely certain, that she would welcome my taking such a step as the greatest charity to her. For though as a fellow creature, she sympathizes with and pities me, and even weeps for me, as a husband... She cannot endure me. She loathes me. There's no use in mincing words. She loathes me. And my only manly and dignified and merciful course is to complete what I have begun. And for worldly reasons, too, it will be better for her to be independent. I have hopelessly ruined my prospects because of my decision as to what was best for us, though she does not know it. I see only dire poverty ahead from my feet to the grave, for I can be accepted as teacher no more. I shall probably have enough to do to make both ends meet during the remainder of my life, now my occupation's gone, and I shall be better able to bear it alone. I may as well tell you that what has suggested my letting her go is some news she brought me, the news that Folly is doing the same. Oh, he had espoused to a queer couple, these lovers. Well, I don't want your opinion on that. What I was going to say is that my liberating her can do her no possible harm and will open up a chance of happiness for her which she has never dreamt of hitherto, for then they'll be able to marry as they ought to have done at first. Gillingham did not hurry to reply. I may disagree with your motive, he said gently, for he respected views he could not share, but I think you are right in your determination. If you can carry it out, I doubt, however... If you can. End of part the fourth. Well, it sounds like there's some foreshadowing going on to mine ear. It sounds as if 
what's going to happen in part the fifth is that we'll probably, I'm just projecting it, we'll probably pick up a little bit later. I'm guessing the divorce between Jude and Arabella has been uh, settled. I'm guessing the divorce between Arabella and Richard has been settled. And now Jude and Sue are free to marry. But will they? And if they do, what do we know about the follies? They do not marry well. We know that marriages in the Folly family always end in heartbreak and tears. And even though we have been led down this primrose path to believe that Jude and Sue can find ultimate happiness together, I doubt it very much. Now, I have long maintained I'm rooting for a murder-suicide here, but I doubt that will happen. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, we're still fairly early into this episode. We can proceed. You know, is that what you want? Is that what you want? I will do you the favor of continuing on part fifth, but maybe I'll ask you for a favor in return, dear listeners. You know, they got these things on the iTunes where you just, you write a review of the podcast. Would it kill you to take two seconds, write a review? Don't just click the thing. Don't just click the five stars. Write the actual review. Why, you ask? Why, Michael? Is it to feed, is it to feed your battered ego? Yes but not entirely. It helps with the success of the podcast itself. When there is activity on the page, when people are engaging with the podcast, when people are leaving reviews, it is helpful in terms of all the little algorithmy things that move the podcast up and down the charts and what have you. The higher it goes, you know, more people uh, find out about it. The next thing you know, I am rolling in Jude the Obscure money. That filthy, filthy Jude the Obscure money. Trafficking in the wares of Thomas Hardy, right? Getting rich off the sweat of another man's brow. That's what I'm looking to do here. Let's write a goddamn review. That's all I've done for you. Part fifth, at Aldbrickham and elsewhere. Well, I mean, this is strange because the other parts have taken place at, say, Mary Green, but they've also been elsewhere, Christ uh, Minster and elsewhere. But this is the only one where he includes and elsewhere. I wonder what that means. Now we're probably going to get a little quote because we do before every uh, part. And here is this one from M. Antoninus. M. Antonius? Antoninus. M. A- a- I don't know. Thy aerial part and all the fiery parts which are mingled in thee, Though by nature they have an upward tendency, still in in obedience to the disposition of the universe, they are overpowered here in the compound mass, the body. Well, that does not bode well for anybody, right? Uh, We have this, we have in our possession a spirit. We try to soar like Iron Man towards the heavens, but the forces of nature overpower us here in this fleshy thing, the compound mass, the body. We are no better than the earthworms Jude discovered as a boy. These flesh tubes, we are as the worms. Chapter one. How Gillingham's doubts were disposed of will most quickly appear 
by passing over the series, oh yeah, well, of dreary months and incidents that followed the events of the last chapter and coming on to a Sunday in the February of the year following. So as predicted, they're picking up a bit later. There's been a series of dreary months and incidents. Sue and Jude were living in Aldbrickham in precisely the same relations that they had established between themselves when she left Shaston to join him the year before. The proceedings in the law courts had reached their consciousness but as a distant sound and an occasional missive which they hardly understood. So the divorce, I can't tell from that whether they are divorced or they aren't divorced, but basically, you know, they came in as... Uh, as intimate friends, the courts have been petitioned for both of them for their divorces. They have remained as intimate friends. I don't mean friends with benefits. There are no benefits here, except perhaps to Sue, which is the benefit of not having to share her body with Jude, a man. They had met, as usual, to breakfast together in the little house with Jude's name on it that he had taken at £15 a year with £3.10 extra for rates and taxes and furnished with his aunt's ancient and lumbering goods, which had cost him about their full value to bring all the way from Marygreen. Sue kept house and managed everything." As he entered the room this morning, Sue held up a letter she had just received. Well, and what is this about, he said after kissing her, that the decree Nisi, and I essay, I guess that's a legal term, in the case of Phillotson versus Phillotson and Folly, pronounced six months ago, has just been made absolute. Okay, so now the divorce is final. Ah, said Jude, as he sat down. I should probably uh, redo that reading too, because there's more weight to it than what I just did. Ah, uh-huh, that was better. Ah, said Jude as he sat down. The same concluding incident in Jude's suit against Arabella had occurred about a month or two earlier. Both cases had been too insignificant to be reported in the papers further than by name in a long list of other undefended cases. Now then, Sue, at any rate, you can do what you like. He looked at his sweetheart curiously. Are we, you and I, just as free now as if we had never been married at all? I assume, uh, so that's what Sue asking. Uh, she's saying, so it's like we were never married. And he says, just as free, except I believe that a clergyman may object personally to remarry you and hand the job on to somebody else. But I wonder, do you think it is really so with us? I know it is generally, but I have an uncomfortable feeling that my freedom has been obtained under false pretenses. How? Well, if the truth about us had been known, the decree wouldn't have been pronounced. It is only, is it, because we have made no defense and have led them into a false supposition. Therefore, is my freedom lawful, however proper it may be? Well, why did you let it be under false pretenses? You have only yourself to blame, he said mischievously. Jude, don't. You ought not to be touchy about that. Still, you must take me as I am. You know, snort, you know, to take me as I am, meaning take me as somebody who will never return to you the love that you have for me. Just take it, you know, just take my three quarters love. It's all I have to offer and it, it's got to be good enough, dude. Very well, darling. So I will. Perhaps you were right. As to your question, we were not obliged to prove anything. That was their business. Anyhow, we are living together. Yes, though not in their sense. One thing is certain, that however the decree may be brought about, a marriage is dissolved when it is dissolved. There is this advantage in being poor, obscure people like us. 
Anytime they say obscure, I'm happy. Anytime. That these things are done for us in a rough and ready fashion. It was the same with me and Arabella. I was afraid her criminal second marriage would have been discovered and she punished, but nobody took any interest in her. Nobody inquired. Nobody suspected it. If we'd been patented nobilities, we should have it had infinite trouble, and days and weeks would have been spent in investigations. By degrees, Sue acquired her lover's cheerfulness at the sense of freedom, and proposed that they should take a walk in the fields, even if they had to put up with a cold dinner on account of it. Jude agreed, and Sue went upstairs and prepared to start, putting on a joyful colored gown in observance of her liberty, seeing which Jude put on a lighter tie. Now we'll strut arm in arm, he said, like any other engaged couple we've a legal right to. They rambled out of the town and along a path over the low-lying lands that bordered it, though these were frosty now, and the extensive seed fields were bare of color and produce. The pair, however, were so absorbed in their own situation that their... Su- oh, now, you know, you hear that? I'm getting a, I'm getting a voicemail. Here's what happened. You know, Martha had de- has decamped at times in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. And she had the bright idea, the ingenious idea of turning off the ringer on the landline. Because as you know, I have this goddamn landline, which she will not let me get rid of. And so as a consequence, you may have noticed the landline has not been ringing during the recording of Obscure. And now I got this guy on the voicemail. Give me a whole thing. And dude, could you leave a longer voicemail message? Is that even possible? Oh, my God. We get it. Shut up. No, thank you very much, sir. I have to take another sip of tea. And a break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm back. Let's read on. 
They rambled out of the town and along a path over the low-lying lands that bordered it, though these were frosty now, and the extensive seed fields were bare of color and produce. The pair, however, were so absorbed in their own situation that their surroundings were little in their consciousness. Well, my dearest, the result of all of this is that we can marry after a decent interval. Yes, I suppose we can, said Sue, without enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, she's as frustrating to me as... I mean, she's not. She's not now. As long as, I, as long as my theory holds that she is, in fact, a lesbian... And look, I, if you think I'm like lesbian bashing here, I'm not. I'm trying to I'm trying to uncover the kind of deeper psychology that's going on with her. I'm 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 saying that that this only her behavior only makes sense in the in the long scope of her life if there is something else troubling her. If there is something else lower than the conscious self that is making her unable to love men and that's really what it is she's there have been three men in love with her none of them have aroused her i mean that in both senses of the word and she knows only that she craves love but it does not seem to move her when she receives that love instead the love that she receives warms her two degrees uh, t- two degrees, not TWO, to, you know, warms her a bit, but it does not slake whatever thirst she has for love. And as I said, I suspect it's because she's gay. So she says, without enthusiasm, and aren't we going to? I don't like to say no, dear Jude, but I feel just the same about it now as I have done all along. I have just the same dread, lest an iron contract should extinguish your tenderness for me and mine for you as it did between our unfortunate parents. Still, what can we do? I do love you, as you know, Sue. I know it abundantly. And and again, again, she's not going to say I love you too. But I think I would rather go on living always as lovers, as we are living now, and only meeting by day. It is so much sweeter, for the woman at least, and when she is sure of the man. And henceforward, we needn't be so particular as we have been about appearances." Our experiences of matrimony with others have not been encouraging, I own, said he, with some gloom, either owing to our own dissatisfied, unpractical natures or by our misfortune, but we too should, and then she says, should be two dissatisfied ones linked together, which would be twice as bad as before. I think I should be afraid of you, Jude, the moment you had contracted to cherish me under a government stamp, and I was licensed to be loved on the premises by you. Oh, how horrible and sordid. Although, as you are, free, I trust you more than any other man in the world. No, no, don't say I should change, he expostulated, yet there was misgiving in his own voice also. Apart from ourselves and our unhappy peculiarities, it is foreign to a man's nature to go on loving a person when he is told that he must and shall be that person's lover. There would be a much likelier chance of his doing it if he were told not to love. 
if the marriage ceremony consisted in an oath and signed contracts between the parties to cease loving from that day forward, in consideration of personal possession being given and to avoid each other's society as much as possible in public, there would be more loving couples than there are now. Fancy the secret meetings between the perjuring husband and wife, the denials of having seen each other, the clambering in at the bedroom windows and the hiding in closets. There'd be little cooling then. Yes, but admitting this or something like it to be true, you are not the only one in the world to see it, dear little Sue. People go on marrying because they can't resist natural forces, although many of them may know perfectly well that they are possibly buying a month's pleasure with a life's discomfort. No doubt my father and mother and your father and mother saw it, if they had all resembled us in habits of observation, but then they went and married just the same, because they had ordinary passions. But you, Sue, are such a phantasmal, bodiless creature, one who, if you'll allow me to say it, has so little animal passion in you that you can't act upon reason in the matter when we poor unfortunate wretches of grosser substance can't. Well, she sighed, you've owned that it would probably end in misery for us, and I am not so exceptional a woman as you think. Fewer women like marriage than you suppose, only, in only they in enter into it for the digni dignity it is assumed to confer, and the social advantages it gains them sometimes, a dignity and an advantage that I am quite willing to do without. I'm going to stop there. Because there's there's a couple things to talk about, and and the, their conversation goes on a little bit, but I, I think and uh, but but first of all, there was a slight exploration uh, page and a half ago of the word obscure, which I liked quite a bit. Uh, being poor, obscure people like us, these things are done for us in a rough and ready fashion. Uh, nobody inquired, nobody suspected it. If we'd been patented nobilities, we should have had infinite trouble. Jude here is celebrating in a sense, the obscure. He is saying that is it is our own obscurity, that thing from which we have both tried to escape uh, all of our lives that has made our love possible. It is our obscurity, in fact, that has shielded us. So that calls to mind, of course, the people, the, 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 the townsfolk in Christminster who he stumbled into when he first went into a bar there and he saw them all uh, talking and gossiping and laughing and singing and merrymaking and, and, and weeping in their drinks and all the rest of it and, and feeling a kinship with those people, those obscure people. And it was their obscurity that allowed them to live lives of purpose. It was their obscurity that allowed them to have a, a certain dignity that he couldn't quite approach. And he fit neither in with them nor with the academics there in Christminster. And like Sue, he has never fit in either world. She has never fit in with the present. She has never fit in with the paradigm of the times. She has never fit in anywhere either. In this episode, she calls them two dissatisfied ones, and that's what they are. And Jude is saying, we can be one satisfied two if you will just give your love to me. And she's saying, I would not have it. It is as false to me as the pretenses under which uh, my marriage was just dissolved. She is incapable of loving him in the way that he wants to be loved. He is incapable 
of letting her go. You know, if they were just cousins, you know, if they were just, uh, you know, let's say brother and sister or something, they lived together and they saw each other during the day as Sue would have it and nothing more, then perhaps they could both be satisfied. But do you think Sue would be satisfied if she said, I can't love you, Jude, but I love you? Meaning I can't love you as a wife, but I love you. And I want you to find true love here in Aldbrickham or elsewhere. But she's no more capable of that than he is of releasing her because she's so terrified of not being adored. She's so terrified of having that sunset that she saw in Phillotson's window not shine upon her. And it was only in that one moment where she could shine some light on him. And it was that act when she just turned her radiance a few degrees towards him that he weakened and asked her to stay. And she, of course, said no, because it was a false light. It wasn't hers at all. So that's where we are. And we can kind of sense how this thing is going to collapse on itself. Because these three hearts that we care about so very much, and you don't, need, you don't need, even need an infinity stone for their magic. It is just the simple magic of life and of love. How will it all collapse? We don't know yet, but we shall soon on another creepy, crawly episode of Obscure. But until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> 
Spanish aquí presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. O donde sea. Spanish aquí presents. 